0: This episode of the AD History Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you, contributing through the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Learn more about how you can support the show by visiting patreon.com slash adhistorypodcast and the exclusive benefits that await your generous support. Thank you. Have you ever wondered how Attila ruled his people and conducted himself as King of the Huns? or what the famous St. Patrick really did in Ireland that leads us to drinking green-coloured beer every March 17th? Well, do we have a story for you.
1: This is the AD History Podcast. Weaving a tapestry of world history from 1AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now, here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote.
0: And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo, and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, this is another one that's just chock full of information today, and kind of is a an AD History calling card, which is to say that episodes that come in parts in terms of subjects we cover which i'm really looking forward to because this is the second of three parts that
2: i'm going to be talking about the infamous attila the hun how are you yeah i'm grand you have done such a fantastic deep dive on attila the hun i think to many people attila the hun is a little more than a name they know of they probably know you played a big role in the downfall of rome so to see a big deep dive on him covered like this is phenomenal Paul he's done terrific work I'm oh, I'm you. grand I'm grand and grand is a great word to use right now because grand, saying you're grand is a very common Irish thing it comes from Irish origin saying you're grand to mean good and I have a very Irish centric uh segment for our episode today and it's one that is very near and dear to both our hearts Paul that we'll dive into when we're talking about it but I'm talking about none other than good old Saint Paddy himself because it was in this decade he really got the ball rolling on becoming that saint of Ireland as we know him today. Oh, you better believe
0: it. And like I said, you know, it's near and dear to our hearts for many reasons, and longtime mm. listeners of AD History will most certainly know why. But we'll mm. get into that once we get to your segment. But with all of that in mind, and all of it out of the way, let's lay down our necessary, obligatory now legendary AD History podcast round rule. One, evaluate events in the context they occurred. Two, over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. Three, nothing in history was inevitable. And four, history and the past is like a different country.
2: Paul, you are back with Attila, and last time you talked to us about Attila, it was about his early days, his rise to power. And I want to hear about what he actually did when he was in power.
0: Well, I think it is best to set the scene. What would have likely been somewhere in his mid-twenties was the time when his uncle Rua died, who was king of the Huns. And this happened in 434 AD. It was at this time that Attila stepped into the limelight, albeit sharing that limelight with his aforementioned brother, Blada. Unlike many other examples we have observed in other powers and other civilizations, both Blada and Attila inherited rule from their uncle in equal measure. Hmm. Also, unlike many other powers and civilizations we have seen so far, Beleda and Attila did not jointly rule their inherited Hun kingdom. Instead, they chose to split their inheritance and rule their portions of it simultaneously, but quite importantly,
2: separately. So, what I find interesting like that is while this doesn't happen all that often in history, we do have some cases are happening most what comes to mind is when Constantine died and his free sons split Rome between themselves and we know that didn't go too well so did Attila and Blader get along while ruling their separate parts of the Hunnic Kingdom or was it another case of not working out too well
0: those are very good examples I yeah. like that a lot it would appear that they got along well enough but it's hard to say Intuitively, one could reasonably conclude that their arrangement for ruling would lend itself to conflict between the two brothers. It is speculated, though not conclusively (laughs) proven by any means, that Attila eventually had Blada killed. But that depends on the source.
2: That's how these things tend to end.
0: Sometimes, but there's no conclusive evidence. It really depends on the source on that one. But that being said. There were many times that Attila and Bleda seemed to be working in common cause and common interest for their respective portions of the Hunnic Kingdom. So whether Attila eventually had Blada killed or not, they seemed to get on better than the arrangement for ruling would likely lend itself hmm.
2: to. So do we know much about what Attila was like as a king? Like, did he present himself well to his people and like, what did his rivals think of him?
0: There's an interesting account, albeit taking place around a decade later from where we are now, that may shed some light on this question. In our previous episode, in the first part of this three-part epic, we came across Priscus, who was a Roman diplomat who had met and been at banquets and had dealings with Attila. Priscus was, at this point, when he made this account, a member of a delegation sent to Attila's court by the powers that be in Constantinople in 448, seeking to secure the return of 17 refugees and or deserters believed to have taken sanctuary within Attila's hunnic fiefdom. The following is written, is a written account by Priscus of Attila himself while attending a formal banquet for the recently arrived Roman envoys. And Priscus writes, quote, A luxurious meal, served on silver plates, had been made ready for us and the barbarian guests. But Attila ate nothing but meat on a wooden platter. And everything else, too, he showed himself temperate. His cup was of wood. His guests were given goblets of gold and silver. His dress, too, was simple, affecting only to be clean. The sword he carried at his side, the straps of his Hunnic shoes and the bridle of his horse were not adorned like those of other Huns with gold or anything else costly. Close Gosh. quote. That's what qu- does this say yeah. about Attila?
2: Like, was this a genuine demonstration by Attila that represented his own true manner? Like, is this really what it was like we he was sort of pushing on a show? Did he want to sort of deliberately betray himself in this way, it's really fascinating.
0: Okay, so here's something interesting. I think you'll appreciate this. Mm. So, when we think about a dictator, especially like a, for example, a military dictatorship, mm. um, we think about that dictator just totally decked out in medals and ribbons and all of the rest, right? Yeah, like... They are just wearing it on their chest. Here's an interesting example, though, of something that very much contrasts this. And oddly enough, it comes from Hitler. <laughs> and when the war began, Hitler put on the German field gray, which he said, "I, you know, I will not take off my field gray coat until the war is over. And on it, the only thing he would wear, and this is back from his time when he was fighting in the First World War, was his Iron Cross Second Class. And this was something that was, from everything I know, very, very deliberate, especially when you put him up in contrast with a figure like Hermann Goering, who had made up all sorts of different uniforms and was totally decked out uh, with pretty much every award you can possibly imagine, including, but not limited to, his Pour le Marit, which was the highest honor that you could achieve during the imperial German period that he earned while he was part of the famous Flying Circus because, of course, he was a pilot in the First World War. But Hitler would do this in insofar as to stand out From his generals and those around him that were more looking to portray this really Mm. intense affectation of medals and being decked out and being in this very high standing. Mm. And we may, at least in this one very specific instance, be looking at something that might be very similar, Mm -hmm. where everybody around him, including his fellow Hunnic nobles, are totally decked out but he quite noticeably is not. And by not ducking himself out with all of these various affectations, he is actually helping himself stand out by contrast. In addition to the fact that he's eating from a wooden platter and he's just eating, you know, cooked mm. meat that doesn't seem to be in any way special, his horse and, you know, the strap for it, and, uh, you know, they're not decked out in diamonds and gold and so and all of that. If you're asking me, I think he may be doing this to stand out in his own way, where the the lack of affectation is making him stand out. In addition to the fact that it also may portray a a certain—I I hate to use this term, but a certain Stoicism— a somebody who is very down to earth, mm. perhaps, and where his priorities are are not this status. He already has the status. But it definitely brings him down to uh, a much more common level, which to a degree is not necessarily a bad thing. You still want to have trappings of power because you don't want to give it all away. But there definitely can be, undoubtedly, whether we're talking about late antiquity here or even to the present, the idea of coming off a bit more common than in reality you actually are.
2: It's interesting. It's like it's a sort of psychological warfare feels at some degree, kind of like making your opponent have the assumption about you is quite a psychological thing, I feel, to a degree.
0: You know, this is undoubtedly true. So Mm. this is an interesting... An interesting observation here by, once again, Priscus. With he and Bleda coming to power, let's talk about the state of Roman Hunnic affairs following the death of Rua and the accession of Bleda and Attila. So, prior to Rua's death, his uncle in 434, he had actually come to an agreement with the Eastern Empire in 422 to keep the peace. The terms of the arrangement was that the powers in Constantinople would pay Rua 350 pounds of gold per year in exchange for a total secession of hostilities.
2: It's a lot of gold.
0: It is a ton of gold. And the arrangement lasted until about 434, when Rua, just prior to his death, sought to increase the amount of gold he was receiving from the Eastern Empire, seemingly to keep the peace and the demand was refused by the Eastern Empire. And with incredibly good timing for the Romans' part, Rua kicked the bucket not too long after. With the accession of both Bleda and Attila, it provided the Eastern Empire with a few years-long pause of pressure being asserted by the Huns, which is to say in the years between 434 and 440, so This decade, to be sure, Bleda and Attila managed to secure an even greater amount of gold in the sum of 700 pounds of gold per year from the Eastern Empire via a treaty that was concluded in Margus.
2: 100% increase. Yeah, more than that. It was
0: more than twofold. The agreement also included an exchange of fugitives the Huns wanted back and provided access to Roman markets for Hunnic traders. Those are very important terms, especially the last part, Mm. because there's a lot of benefit that can come with that. You You want your people to be prosperous because if they're prosperous, that means you will be prosperous in all likelihood. Scholars speculate that the reason for this more than twofold increase in payment and otherwise highly beneficial terms granted by the Eastern Empire was due to Theodosius II having bigger fish to fry, and paying off Hunnic powers to keep the peace was a relative bargain. The Eastern Empire at that point was preparing a major campaign against the Sassanid Persians, and Theodosius absolutely required matters to be settled, at least for a time, to his rear.
2: So we see the relative benefits of Theodosius paying off the Huns to maintain the peace, but What are the dangers in doing so? This is an
0: interesting
2: question. Hmm.
0: That would very much depend and is very much relative to whom you are dealing with. We live in a day and age where where in diplomacy the term appeasement is a very dirty Hmm. word, is it not? Mm, Yeah, appeasement kind of gives off
2: the idea that no one wins
0: well more accurately that the other side wins yeah again, and, yeah because and, the it, other
2: side wins yes yeah
0: and if you appease them all all it does is you're grow. Rolling over. yeah they're just yeah you're rolling over and you're giving in and it only emboldens the side you're appeasing mm. and of course there's no question that this prevailing belief on the popular level of course is a product of Munich in 1938 though in practical diplomacy appeasement is very much part and parcel to the whole affair Think about it. Mm. In our everyday lives, we appease each other all the time. You kind of have to. There yeah. has to be give and take. Diplomacy is no different in that regard. So the best way to answer your question, Patrick, is it really boils down to the idea that in diplomacy, appeasement should never be off the table. Mm. But instead, the lesson is be careful who you appease. Mm. That is very much bears out here in this case. In this case, it is reasonable to conclude that the agreement they struck with the Eastern Empire was interpreted as weakness by the Huns. And to a certain extent, they weren't wrong. As by 441, likely in a move to extort an even greater payment from the Eastern Empire, hostilities broke out again with Hunnic attacks on Thrace and Illyricium. And the Huns claimed that the Bishop of Margus had crossed into Hunnic territory to plunder the treasures buried with former Hunnic king. Gosh. The the truth of these claims are at best unclear, and just between you, me, and the lamppost, I think are probably bull. Hmm. But whether they actually happened or this was, you know, they conducted some sort of false flag operation, we cannot really say definitively. You know, it's one of those things where they saw an opportunity and then in 441 basically said, okay, we're going to put pressure on them again. We can maybe even get any more. And obviously they were quite successful in this in many regards.
2: So we know that the Huns, were so good but what made them so effective in battle
0: so that's the one thing that we haven't really talked too much about in our Hmm. discussion regarding the huns whether it be back in our episode in our previous season or so far in regards to attila because obviously that is the one thing that is undeniably of the greatest interest to a lot of people and has made the greatest impression upon many people both in the present day and going all the way back to when this was actually going down. In this case, to start, obviously, this campaign in the early 440s exceeds the scope of this episode, of Mm. which the third and final part on Attila will conclude in our next episode. Mm. But to answer your question, there is a multitude of factors that went into Hunnic's success on the battlefield. And obviously, when it came to Attila, he became a real master of this, even though in many respects... History has kind of inflated his conquest in terms of their scope. There's no question that he had a great many military success on the field. So there's a multitude of factors that go to hunting success on the mm. battlefield. Something that is rather well understood in general is that the Huns are well known to history for their prowess on horseback, though it wasn't merely due to their skills with their war ponies but their tremendous skill using composite bows Mm. while riding. This usually meant, while on the battlefield, that they had to keep themselves steady and guide the horse using entirely the strengths in their legs as they required both hands to handle the composite
2: bow. So was that a skill the Romans just didn't have at all or just they hadn't perfected in the same way the Huns had, you know...
0: The Huns were apparently just masters at it. You know, I know the they're Ro- very
2: horse; they, they were very known for their horse skills.
0: Absolutely, mm. and you know, as far as I know, the Romans did not, uh, were not without their respective ability on horseback as well, but when it came to the Huns, the Huns, mm. they did it to a T. Uh, they, they really mastered the battlefield doing it. Their prowess on horseback obviously lends itself to another aspect of their military success, which, of course, is tremendous mobility. This is an element of combat that has never ceased in importance, a tactical truth that both Napoleon and Patton could equally attest to even centuries later. But their advantageous mobility extended beyond horseback on the battlefield. For much of the European Huns' short history, relatively speaking, they could strike deep behind enemy frontiers and very, very quickly, given this ability on horseback. However, it is important to note that for many reasons, deep as they may have been able to strike at times, they couldn't really stick around long after doing so. Mm. So while there were times when certain frontier regions were, of course, ceded by the Romans to the Huns, it was difficult for them to make large strikes deep into enemy territory though Hunnic ability especially under Attila did evolve we'll get to that shortly if Hunnic units needed to retreat they could pack up camp with their encamp communities and supplies and be off in a flash mm. so that way if for some reason they needed to get out of dodge they could do so with their families, their equipment, their supplies, and off they go. Which, of course, makes them a very slippery and difficult enemy to manage. But what is very interesting here are the observations of the Hunnic forces during their campaigns in the early 440s against the Romans. And once again, I know this goes beyond the scope Mm. of this episode, but it is important here because in this part, this very much focuses on how Attila was involved in the evolution regarding how the Huns fought and how it changed from what I just described, even though it still does include elements of what I just described. In this case, notably, it had to do with their use of siege weapons, likely crafted off of Roman designs that they had managed to capture the use of siege weapons also marked an interesting evolution in Hunnic strategy, which is sticking around long enough to conduct an effective siege. Now, in recent episodes, we've talked Mm. on a number of occasions, especially when we were talking about Alaric, about prolonged sieges, none more famous or rather infamous than those that he conducted around Rome itself. And something that we have learned, undoubtedly, is that when you're conducting a siege— you better be prepared to hang around for a Mm -hmm. while because it can take time. You might get lucky, and those who are living in the place you're besieging will throw open their gates at the beginning, and you can just forego the whole experience entirely. But that obviously did not always happen. And this is really important because, one is, they've clearly gone from a power that had a lot of prowess on horseback, that was very, very fast, that were very skilled composite bowmen well on horseback that could strike deep but not for long to a force that now has large siege equipment, which is something that the Jervingi mm. Goth really could have used after the Battle of Adrian Opal, as we talked about uh, in our last season. Mm. And so they go from this highly mobile force, and they're still highly mobile on the battlefield, to a force now that not only is showing... And, you know, a demonstrated ability to hang around for a while, but are also now using siege weapons, which is a really big deal Hmm. because without siege weapons, conducting a siege is a lot harder to do, if not outright impossible.
2: Kind of in the name.
0: (laughs) In many respects. (laughs) The other very interesting aspect of this whole arrangement is actually the Hunnic Forces themselves and how they were composed. Okay. Mm. Both a little before and certainly now with Attila in the picture, it is clear there's an abundance of fighting forces who themselves were not Huns, peoples including Goths, Mm. Vandals, and indeed some Romans who had defected and crossed the lines to. Attila's Hunnic side, all of whom which were being led under Hunnic officer's leadership. This is interesting, is it not?
2: That's so interesting. You don't even think about the idea of Romans defecting to join the Huns. That's just such an alien concept. And the Goths and Vandals, they've already got, they're already quite experienced against Rome as well. So it's handy having them on their side for their experience alone.
0: There's no question about it. And so now, and we've been seeing this a lot over Mm -hmm. the last few centuries, especially in the Western Empire, where when it comes to loyalties and those who are in your ranks, it's really turned into just this geopolitical landscape of scrambled eggs. Mm. Everybody who is there is not necessarily the folks that you would automatically conclude would be there. Mm. And, And the fact that you have goths and vandals and romans that are fighting under hunnic leadership is a perfect demonstration of that goths and, and... vandals
2: and romans oh my <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> oh,
0: oh, oh boy that is a patrick foot original right there <laughs> you know what what can i possibly say what can i possibly say it is it is absolutely the truth it also definitely tells about how the huns were being viewed by those who would join their ranks, which is to say that they're going to get a better deal. And clearly they hold folks like Attila and his brother Bleda in high esteem, Mm. that these are folks worth joining, that there is something that is going to be had from giving their loyalty and fighting in their ranks. Because once again, soldiers, they do get paid, but they mostly get paid in plunder. Mm. No question about it. But it's like based a sales
2: the, job. You get commissions.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's actually a really <laughs> cool way to put it. I, I like that. There, there, hmm. there's, there's a lot of truth to that. But based on the research I've done, it would appear that the Huns in these ranks were a minority of those fighting for Attila and Blada's armies. Gosh. So not only are there many outsiders who are in their ranks, the Huns themselves are actually in the minority. You know, yeah. that's, that, that's uh, it sounds strange.
2: You, you kind of think the Hunnic army, the Huns army would be made up primarily of Huns. So you would think. That's where logic dictates us. Now, when it comes to this,
0: there's actually a bit of historical precedence here in regards to the makeup of armies that are multinational. At a time that you would not think that they are multinational, that there is definitely something of a historical misconception in this case, because why would you think otherwise? This may sound strange at Mm. first but it is more common than you would think, not only for the Huns, but for other highly successful fighting forces throughout history. A great example is Napoleon, Mm. and especially for his massive invasion of the Russian Empire in June of 1812. In the case of Napoleon, his initial forces crossing into the Russian Empire's territory was believed to be up to half a million troops, far larger than any force he had commanded prior within his ranks at the time. There was a notably large contingent of soldiers who were not French from all over where the French at the time claimed dominion. This same phenomenon also proved to be the case with the Huns at this point, essentially operating in a highly similar fashion. Gosh, I, guess so, that's,
2: I guess that's the perk of empire, isn't it? You've got more more people to choose. To join your army, regardless of they're actually from your nation or not,
0: that's absolutely the case here. So we're beginning to see even early on in Attila's leadership here, especially in this mostly large, you know, part of the first decade he was in power, hmm. that he was very, very mindful of his appearance and how he projected himself, both to his rivals, his contemporaries his subordinates, and his people. He definitely wanted to project a very specific image of himself, and that one was not an image that included a great display of wealth and the various affectations, that he enjoyed the contrast between his relatively modest appearance and affectations and those of, say, his fellow nobles. That really made him stand out in a variety of ways. In addition to that, he was a very, very keen strategic thinker and definitely saw opportunities where they existed and had a tremendous ability to exploit them. In addition to that, not only did he have a tremendous amount of military success, it is also interesting to note that during his time, one is that he seems to be deviating from that traditional form of military hmm in terms of being largely mobile on horseback using composite bows to also using siege equipment and conducting sieges. And this is also to include, but is not limited to the fact that his forces, Huns were in the minority and that he had folks in his fighting ranks from all over, Vandals, Goss, and mm. even Romans. And that he was going about it and you could see his leadership beginning to evolve and how the Huns operated, especially on the battlefield, were operating as well. And this is kind of a good, fundamental stepping point from where we're going to see yeah. him go from here in his last decade and a half of power yeah. in the next episode.
2: In part three of this epic, it's been fascinating stuff, Pool.
0: He's an interesting fellow yeah. from everything that we could know, so... Part three of three's coming next. And us here, you there, and we'll be back right afterward from Anna Domeney.
1: This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at AD History PC and the hashtag AD History. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. Now, Patrick. We're getting into
0: a figure that I think we can both reasonably be quite excited about. Mm. And for longtime listeners of AD History, you, the longtime listener, will have a pretty clear idea as to why this particular figure that we're about to cover is of such personal interest to us, starting with, of course, the fact that my co-host is named patrick and you're also partly irish as i recall
2: i am partly irish indeed yeah um there's more to it than just that though paul we'll talk about that in a moment so, so saint patrick is a beloved saint he's probably the most famous saint kind of behind saint nicholas i would say in regards to world renownness. and it was actually in this decade where saint patrick comes onto the scene in ireland and when i yeah i don't mean he was born in this decade this is the decade he arrived in ireland to do his thing and it's the place he's so deeply linked with to this day and we do have a very special affinity with saint patrick here in england not only because i'm called patrick but paul even though you're not called patrick used to have a very deep link with st Pat, patrick doom specifically with st patrick's day because it's indeed. more than St Patrick's Day to yourself.
0: It is indeed, because in addition to it being the festival that celebrates St Patrick, it is also my birthday. But I'm not the only person in this show who has a birthday on St Patrick's Day. One Anna Domini shares the honor with me.
2: It, it, it's great. It's just it's it's just such a great uh serendipitous event that we have these bizarre ties with my name. Your birthday with anna's birthday and also paul not only do you have deep blinks with st patrick's day and his birthday you have a deep history of chicago chicago is probably one of the places most well known for their huge celebration of st patrick's day
0: so if you're from the united states and you're mm. listening and you're from the united states but you haven't been to chicago you know that they dye the river kelly green on St. Patrick's Day. But of course what most people don't know that haven't visited there or live there is that the river is Chicago River's almost always emerald green, <laughs> which is interesting to note. And yeah, well Chicago had an incredible influx of the Irish that emigrated to the United States it really has informed so much of modern Chicago culture. Mm. They used to have two St. Patrick's Day parades, one that was downtown and one that was on the south side. Unfortunately, they ended the one on the south side a few years back due to some alcohol-induced fatalities. I think there was some drunk driving And The fact of the matter is when you go to St. Patrick's Day in Chicago— It is a prolific drinking day, and I was there attending Loyola Chicago on my 21st birthday in St. Patrick's Day in Chicago, and it was a fantastic event. The entire weekend, considering it fell on Monday, turned into a three-day St. (laughs) St. Patrick's Day celebration. So as you can imagine, yours truly at the time was all over that.
2: I, I can only fathom what it must be like having your 21st birthday on St. Patrick's Day in Chicago, that must have been quite a wild experience. I can, I can only imagine what it was like. And it's...
0: The one small story I will <laughs> share from that, that I shared way, way back in the first season mm. of AD history is on the night of St. Patrick's Day, I went up to a bar and I got carted by the bouncer and he goes down and he looks at it and you can see his eyes open up wide like they became saucers. And he said, <laughs> oh, man. That's fucking dangerous. <laughs> Let's get you a beer. Hands it back. So, funny story. Always a enjoy wonderful night. You know, no no terrible debauchery, at least none that not out share here. <laughs> but it was a great night. I couldn't have asked for a better 21st no, birthday. Like... But But back to mm. the St. Patrick.
2: Yes, of course. So, when it comes to talking about St. Patrick, and it's great to begin from the beginning, and the problem with that is we're not entirely sure about his origins uh we think he was born somewhere in the late 4th century some sources point specifically to either 373 AD or maybe even 390 AD but we're not entirely sure and likewise not only we're not sure when he was born we aren't sure where exactly he was born While we know he was born in Britain, we're not exactly sure where in Britain. Some sources say Wales and some sources say Scotland. But what we know for sure, he wasn't born in Ireland. St. Patrick isn't Irish, not an Irish person. And despite Patrick now being a deeply linked Irish name, thanks to St. Patrick, that probably wasn't even his real name. It's believed that his real name was something on the lines of a Mawin Sucat, how he became patrick i'm not entirely sure but maywin sukat sukat maywin sukat give it a couple of tries there one of them is bound to be right um we probably think that's his real name and he wasn't even that particularly religious from the get-go either his father was actually a deacon but it's more for he went to the religious side into a religious profession more for tax reasons and incentives as opposed to actually being religious. We've all done things like that, Paul. We've all said, yeah, I'm that for a bit of extra cash, you know. <laughs> We've all done bits and bobs like that, I suppose. Not so much become a priest just for uh, for money or anything, but... We're happy to let our beliefs slide sometimes for monetary gain.
0: Especially if we're talking about the Roman Catholic Church, you become a priest, you do so taking a vow of poverty. So for the most part, (laughs) financial incentive is not too often associated with going into that particular calling.
2: No, but what we know for sure is uh, most of his youth was actually pretty unacceptable. He was a well-to-do young man. He came from a pretty well-to-do background, we believe but with not much ambition in life. But that oh. changed once he infamously got kidnapped. And at 16 years old, Patrick, or Maywin Sakat as he was known as then, he was actually taken by Irish pirates and smuggled over to Ireland. And this was his introduction to the land he is now so deeply linked with. And Paul, talk about a bad first impression, right?
0: that is definitely not starting out on the the best foot to say the least in fact just putting yourself in his place that mm. must have been abjectly terrifying
2: gosh yeah like ireland at this time was such a, uh, I was say a wild land but it was it wasn't particularly Yeah, you know, it wasn't under the roman sphere of influence talking about like being taken to such a foreign land as it would have been at the time would have been terrifying and absolutely and this is right about the time that the Romans are
0: preparing to make their exit
2: Mm -hmm, exactly so it's all go and it's believed he was held captive in Ireland for around six years and it was here he was a slave and he primarily worked in isolation out on the Irish fields as a shepherd and farmer and what's interesting is actually during this time despite the fact he wasn't too religious when he was younger It was this time he started to become way more religious and find Christianity more. Like, he was raised in a Christian family, so he knew all about it, he just never really cared about it. But it was in this case he fell to religion. And this is easy to understand how this was the case. It's so often we see people turn to religion in a time of need when there's no hope. And you can see this in so many ways. You can see this with uh, just... People who don't normally pray, praying in a time of need that like they hope something goes well. And we see in history as well, it's, I always talk about Martin Luther, but he famously turned to God while in the middle of a storm at sea. He said, if you save me from this storm, I would devote my life to being a monk. So it's not an uncommon thing to turn to religion when life isn't particularly going your way
0: nope he would certainly not be the first to do so
2: no definitely not definitely not the last uh and it was after six years in slavery he supposedly had a voice telling him it was time to break free of course this is all leading into that religious side uh patrick believed it to be the voice of god himself and it was with that he started his escape and he walked 200 miles from where he was being held captive Uh, eventually stowing away on a ship and finally back in Britain he was reunited with his family but he wouldn't stay away from Ireland for too long as we all know he went back there and even though he was back in Britain he didn't leave his religious awakening away with him in Ireland he took that back to Britain with him and it was in Britain he started training to become a priest and as he trained as a priest, he decided to return his attention back to Ireland. And you can't help but think, for why Ireland? Like, he's just escaped from Ireland. Why on earth would he want to go back to the land? That is he-
0: something, that's something that is totally
2: inexplicable.
0: Here. Yeah. So I mean, there there had to be something greater going on that creates this motivation to go back into what was from his perspective, you know, the
2: the the jaws of the beast mm. so why i well supposedly it was told to him in the same way a voice told him to break free it was a voice in a dream that told him you must return to ireland there's also beliefs that he was also sent there as well by the church to go to ireland we'll delve into that in a moment but one of the, the big famous stories that he was told in a dream by either an angel or god that he must return back to ireland so whatever the case it was Patrick returned to the land he was held captive in, and he supposedly returned to Ireland in 432 AD. Which, of course, fittingly, is the is a, a time period that fits in as a decade recovering today. I'm about to say, we have just
0: entered the range of this episode, our mm-hmm. purview in mm-hmm. this installation of the AD History Podcast,
2: and. What I find interesting about this is not only the story of St. Patrick, but I'm always fascinated to the development of Christianity at the time and where Christianity is at any point in history. It, it's come leaps and bounds from the beginning of this podcast, to say the least. And Absolutely. Of course, by this time, Constantine had cemented Christianity as pretty much the dominant religion of Europe, whether that be Western Rome, Eastern Rome even more germanic areas were still practicing christianity to some degrees we've talked about in previous episodes we'll say how the sacking of rome churches were preserved because the germanic tribes the barbarians were christian unto themselves so they kept those protected christianity is in full swing and what's interesting is while geographically european ireland stayed very isolated during this whole period as we know it was never colonized and claimed and came under that roman sphere of influence and this has allowed ireland to maintain a much more unique celtic identity because it never came under that roman influence we talked about this before like how wales cornwall scotland of course have this very strong identity that isn't quite roman and it's fully celtic and it holds on to that identity to this very day. Ireland has a very unique cultural identity found nowhere else really on the planet. It's it's why St. Patrick's Day is so gosh darn popular in America, that sort of classic, shillelaghs, leprechauns, green, the Emerald Isles, all that sort of stuff. It was made at this time period, it was thanks because Ireland never became Roman. But while it was still very much a Celtic pagan place, christianity's influence spread far and wide and even though the island of ireland was never roman christianity still managed to find its way there and how did this happen exactly i imagine it would have been through sort of merchant trade. We know for sure that there was contact between Ireland and Britain when it was Roman. They were bandaged, you know, St. Patrick literally got smuggled over there. I know Rome's on its way, but we talked about in the past when Britain, when Wales became Roman, when parts of the island became more Roman, there was still this sort of relationship with Ireland. Rome even considered uh, claiming Ireland for themselves at one point, if memory serves. So there would have been contact between the two and it's easy to see maybe some people in Roman Britain decided to go make a base over in Ireland. Maybe they wanted to be free of Roman rule. They wanted to start life fresh somewhere. I know for a fact there was even like Norsemen. That might be a bit later down the line but Vikings had a bit of an outpost in Ireland too. That's way down the line but it's clear to see that People came to Ireland, whether that be from Rome, whether that be from northern Germany. People did go and live, or at least trade with Ireland. With that, they bring their religion. I imagine it would have been through not a mass influx of Christian settlers there, but bits and bobs coming down through the line, bringing their religion with them, and making a small indent in Ireland with its Christianity. Not fully. So Ireland wasn't fully Christian at this time. It was small pockets of Christianity in the nation that still widely followed its pagan Celtic beliefs.
0: Well, this is interesting mm. because Ireland is one of the most Christian places in modern Europe, especially when we're talking about, in the case of the Republic of Ireland, Roman Catholic, and in Northern Ireland, not quite so Roman Catholic. (laughs) No. But right now given just the the entirety of the island that we know as ireland Mm. it being one of the last places in europe that christianity really took hold in
2: it's strange isn't it i find that so fascinating because we do like if you think countries that are christian to me ireland like is one of the first ones i think of as strong christian countries and to hear that it was it, it was late to the party that's the best way to explain it. it was late to the party on this whole christian thing but when it got fashionably there, late fa- fashionably later when it got there good lord it took hold um, yes it did yes it did and of course it was thanks to patrick as to why christianity spread so well in ireland and this is what i find fascinating how how patrick saint patrick managed to make Christianity such a hot commodity in Ireland. And he's often portrayed as coming in and making the entirety of the island Christian. And that really wasn't the case. It wasn't, Patrick didn't force Christianity on the Irish. It wasn't some sort of holy war or mass conversion. Like he wasn't punishing people like we saw with the past when the pagan religion fell out of fashion in Rome. In Rome, people were punished. It was a crime to worship the traditional Roman gods. Once christianity came over patrick didn't do anything like that
0: this is an organic and as far as we could tell a Mm. self-determined conversion
2: and what he did so well patrick because he lived in ireland for six years he was and despite living somewhat in isolation and being a slave for that matter he still became very well versed and educated on Irish culture, how the Irish people were, their belief systems. He knew a lot about it. And while he was there to convert the Irish, he was also there to minister the Christians already living in the land. That's one of the other reasons he was sent. He was sent there to just make sure the Christians in Ireland were doing their thing correctly. And despite being held captive there, Patrick was actually the best fit for the job because he understood Irish culture so well. In a way, many other priests at that time from Britain, from the Roman Empire, probably didn't fully understand. He understood how important the Irish held on to their Celtic pagan traditions. He understood that if he took away their Celtic pagan roots for sale and replaced it with Christianity, that would upset the Irish. So what Patrick did so geniusly is that he actually integrated christian christian beliefs and the pagan traditions together and i find that so fascinating because it's not it's not completely unheard of to us paul
0: a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine (laughs) go down exactly medicine go down (laughs) because medicine go down
2: we we've seen this before in rome itself when christianity became popular in rome they integrated parts of the pagan Roman religion into Christianity with perhaps the best example being Sol Invictus, which is on the 25th of December. They made that Christmas because the Romans were already accustomed to partying and celebrating on that day. Yeah, they were doing it anyway.
0: Yeah. Because we talked about this previously because one mm -hmm. of the things that's interesting is that they were celebrating Christmas around this time because it roughly dates, based on their knowledge at the time, to when... Christ was conceived, mm. and then they added nine months. Mm. So they, so it just kind of ended up fusing together. And then, of course, Christianity, through the work of Constantine and later Theodosius the you have what was, in this case, the, the celebration of Saturnalia, mm. right around the twenty fifth, and that being like basically a week long mm. raucous festival, combined with the celebration of christmas happening around the same time and then wham boom you got it there it created itself
2: Mm, totally so it just it wasn't no new thing to integrate previous religions into christianity it's one of the reasons christianity spread so well it's kind of like what the romans did themselves with their empire they didn't when they got new parts then they claimed new areas of land for the empire we have talked about this they didn't just make it roman they kind of that's good we'll work for that they integrate themselves is why it took off so well
0: yeah, they didn't want to hit you over the head with their own language and mm. religion. They would largely let you do your thing so long as you kept peace and order and you kept paying your taxes. Exactly.
1: And that's that's when the of, yeah. Romans
0: were operating at their best, especially in the early empire.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That's kind of what Christianity did as well. And one of the best, most noticeable ways Patrick integrated Christianity with the Celtic religions, the pagan Celtic religions of Ireland is with the Celtic cross. And you've probably seen the Celtic cross before. It's a very unique form of the cross that is very linked with Ireland and Celtic countries. You see them on the Isle of Man, you probably see him in Scotland, you probably see them in Wales. Uh, so it looks like a normal traditional cross, as in a normal Christian cross, but it has a ring around the main part of the cross Yes. uh sometimes it could be seen being more ornate as well sort of celtic patterns on the inside a bit more uh exaggerated the cross can often be a bit more exaggerated itself but in its basic form it looks like a standard christian cross but a circle going through the top half of it this cross is believed to have been created by saint patrick uh oh. the ring in the middle is meant to reflect the sun And the sun played a vital role in Ireland's pagan tradition. They worship the sun, that sort of thing. So Patrick thought, well, here's Christianity. Here's our cross. But however, because you guys love the sun so much, I respect how much it's important to you. We'll integrate the sun into the Holy Cross. And this integration of the two religions helped the Irish accept Christianity way more. Like you said, a, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is just a perfect demonstration of mm. him tailoring his you know, proselytizing Christianity to also meet with the sensibilities and beliefs that already existed.
2: Mm, totally, it's just very clever stuff. And that he also oh, yeah. celebrated Easter with a bonfire because bonfires were popular in the Irish tradition too. Now, I'm not sure if bonfires are still used in ireland to celebrate easter i don't know that i'm afraid but ireland does have a fascinating history with bonfires uh do you know at all about the bonfires in northern ireland pool no i don't so i don't know if it relates to this uh so i believe it's the battle of the Boyne. uh there's a huge big celebration in northern ireland to celebrate uh the union and one of the ways it's marked is with these humongous bonfires they are shocking to look at if you can google them quickly paul it's just an interesting talk about it. I don't know if you've ever seen any i don't know if there's anything common like it in america I imagine a great point of reference would be something like burning man but like these huge bonfires made of pallet boards are constructed to celebrate a holiday in northern Ireland. oh wow yeah oh wow uh, they yeah are...
0: i'm looking at it right now and those are you know talk about a conflagration
2: mm-hmm. they're humongous things um I just found that interesting. That was just a bit of a tangent talking point. I found interesting how this of traditional bonfires in Ireland, it just brought that straight to mind. But these are just two prime examples of how Patrick so successfully integrated Christianity into Ireland so well that it still is a deeply Christian country to this day. It wasn't all easy. However, some Irish chieftains weren't happy with Patrick trying to convert people by any means. He got locked up a good handful of times. Yep, he was made prisoner in Ireland once again, but he was so devoted to his cause that he kept on through it. And eventually he did win out. And his teachings paved the way for Ireland to become the heavily Christian country it is today. And Patrick actually died in 461 AD. So that's a couple decades down the line from where we are right now. And by the time he died, the Christian church in Ireland had been well and truly established and of course he supposedly died on the 17th of march or as you would say paul march 17th which is not only Saint me day but your (laughs) birthday ties us full circle back here
0: indeed as it has been for the past 35 years
2: But I'm probably sure there's a question a lot of people are thinking right now. In yeah, regards there's to one that I know I'm thinking of right yeah. the second. I've been
0: thinking about this from the very beginning. It's something
2: I haven't mentioned yet at all.
0: And if you're if you're listening closely, I'm sure you'll know where I'm going with this in all likelihood. Because how could you not? It It is one of the burning questions that comes with all of this, which is what is the story about the snakes where does this all come i understand that they're speaking you know proverbially but tell us about the snakes and the story (laughs) of the
2: snake this is like one of those most famous stories about st patrick he supposedly drove all the snakes out of ireland like an irish whacking day It reminds you of the episode of the simpsons to a degree yes yes it does <laughs> with
0: with good old barry white to help out
2: exactly yes this is one, one of the one of the more classic episodes of the simpsons whacking day um this is a little more than a myth however so this just flat out never happened and this is because we know ireland is one of the few land masses on our planet that snakes have never lived on we have snakes here in britain and the island of britain snakes are here they're not massive poisonous things but you do get grass snakes adders here in the uk in britain i would say uh not ireland however no snakes ever in ireland they never got there and if you're interested in the other ones the land masses bleed to not have any snakes in new zealand iceland greenland and antarctica so fun fact there <laughs> but there is a reason this story exists. Snakes have a certain image in Christianity; they're sort of the the animal that personifies evil in many ways. They're seen as being untrustworthy and evil, and that goes all the way back to Genesis. Exactly, the apple in the Garden of Eden, They're sin. It's snakes are seen as the animal of sin. So having Patrick drive the sin slash snakes out of Ireland, it kind of makes him more holy than. Holy and that's where that came from. It's complete hogwash and while that story is nonsense St Patrick was a very real person and I hope I hope I've done it justice. I always love sort of taking a moment to highlight someone like this. We did it with St Nicholas a few episodes a few a few seasons ago and that was really fascinating so to highlight the real St Patrick and what was so fascinating really about him his ability to integrate the Celtic Irish traditions. Into Christianity to make it acceptable there and create set Ireland on the path that it is to this very day.
0: Uh, you know, Saint Patrick, the story about the snakes, Roman Catholicism, hmm. just absolute, absolute, at least from the American perspective, hmm. fundamental to at least the American view of Ireland. Yeah, and especially for a country, you know. As far as the Irish are concerned, a lot of the Irish who emigrated from Ireland during the Great Diaspora Mm. came right here to this country. And this story and the story of St. Patrick and Roman Catholicism with the Irish take on it Mm. are all fundamental elements, certainly with greater emphasis in some places more than others. But there's no question that St. Patrick's Day is on every calendar for every American, for everyone that you will buy. And depending on where you are, it can be a real blast. Whether it's Chicago, whether it's Boston, whether it's here in New York City, it is for us a fundamental element of our understanding and view of Ireland, I think, without a doubt.
2: There's so I'd say there's probably four major holidays I'd like to experience in the states. I've been very fortunate. I've been in the states for Halloween. I was in New York just briefly around the, around the same trip. I met yeah, you. you I, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Was I the one who suggested you attend the Greenwich Village Halloween parade?
2: You probably were, paul It was a trip. I, I was. Yeah, it was so fun to because such a thing like Halloween in the USA is such a big deal. Obviously, I'd love to experience a Christmas there. I'd love to experience a Thanksgiving firsthand. It's such an alien concept to me. I want to eat all of that food, please. But of course, I would love to spend a St. Patrick's Day in 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 America, in the USA. Because that'd be so fascinating.
0: Well, as a Briton, mm. I think the holiday that more than any that you need to experience, not just because you know you'll take some some good fun-loving, ribbing. <laughs> but undoubtedly, you need to be here on July 4th. It'll make me too sad, Independence Day.
2: I'll be booing. I'll be the only person in the crowd booing. <laughs> oh,
0: oh. I-, I can assure you, Mr. Foot, that when it comes to like truly American holidays, that July 4th was... and Independence Day is a total blast.
2: It must be. is the most American American holiday and what's interesting yes. Yes, is indeed. I think we're one of the few, I think it's us in Denmark, the only two countries in the world without like a national holiday in that regard. Like we don't have an Independence oh. Day. We don't have like a national celebration day. And of course, that comes from the fact that the UK is very unique in the fact it's made of four countries. So you can't solely celebrate St. George's Day. On a national scale, because he's the painter saint of England, things of like that. George's Day, Andrew's Day, uh St. David's Day, of course, St. Patrick's Day itself, they've all been suggested. But we don't have a public holiday purely in the form of celebrating the country. I think it's something that's been floated about a lot, but it's it's not a real thing. So whether it be in the USA or celebrating, I don't know, I'm trying to think of another country, uh Columbia Independence Day or nigerian independence day like any sort of independence Day, would be a very interesting experience for a Because it's something that's such an alien concept to us because normally they're celebrating independence from us
1: <laughs> well there you are
0: no one thing i could definitely say about independence day july 4th here in the united states is that America throws the best birthday parties. Yeah. Is that I, all you got for us, Mr. Foot?
2: Yes, I'll add that one to the list. Hopefully at some point I'll be in the States for an Independence Day, as well as a Thanksgiving, a Christmas, and a thanks Thanksgiving, and a St. Patrick's Day, bring this thing full circle.
0: Cheers to that. Us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from AD. This is the
1: AD History Podcast.
0: Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us?
2: You can find me personally primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. You can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT and of course on YouTube search NameExplain. What about you, Paul?
0: In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKD in history, as well as my reader-submitted World War II Q&A column, the World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War
2: II-related questions.
0: Which, if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description.
2: That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care.
0: Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time.
1: Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at adhistorypc, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash adhistorypodcast and Instagram as AD History Podcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick... Thank you for listening to the A.D. History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.